Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is... Miria Georgiou. Rafe Miria, very nice to see you. You've told me already that you're in rainy London. So although there's nothing terribly new about that, it may be that that's on your mind. But what else is on your mind right now? What are you thinking about? What's animating you at present? Hi, Toby. It's great to be here. Uh, great to be on your podcast. I'm a, I'm a true fan. So um, uh, this is a good moment uh, to to join you, even in a rainy London day. <laughs> uh, so uh, what is in my mind? Um, I mean, obviously, what I'm thinking, like so many other people, is the horror of war and the brutality that we see happening right now um, in the Middle East and the uh, and the full destruction of uh, of Gaza and Palestinian lives? Um, it, it, I think it's hard to uh, to escape this reality, and I don't think that we should. But I also know that you want to hear a bit more about what I'm thinking right now in relation to work. And um, and while I don't think what I'm thinking about work is unrelated to what we see in uh, different sides of uh, violence, um, I will I will try to land in that space, especially cities, especially uh, what I refer to as uh, digital cities. So cities where we see uh, the advancement of digitization, the um, uh, full integration of technologies in all elements of life, cultural life, political life, and economic life. So um, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about digital cities in relation to a much bigger question. Uh, so that big, important philosophical and political question, I think, and more and more uh, important political question about what it means to be human right now. Um, so I'm taking that big question, which I, did, which I didn't expect actually to be asking in relation to digital cities. Um, I'm taking that big question of what it means to be human, uh, and I'm addressing it in relation to its very specific expressions and implications in urban societies. In the urban societies where, um, as I mentioned, so much of life is organized and mediated uh, through digital technologies. Um, and I'm asking, I'm bringing the two together. Perhaps it's counterintuitive to talk about technology and to talk about what it means to be human. Um, because that's exactly, it's a paradox that I encountered when I went out to see what's happening in these cities. Um, that, um, where I saw that the more technologies advance, the more claims about what it means to be humans, uh, to be human and what humans need are being made. And there are claims to, uh, to urban humanity being made by different actors. Uh, there are claims that, about what it means to be human that urban dwellers make. Uh, but there are claims to what it means to be human and what humans uh, need uh, by actors that we're not used to usually to hear them talking about humans, such as the big tech, um, big corporations, and the state. Um, so I ended up writing this book, which was supposed to be about technology, and it ends up being about being human in digital cities, which is the title of the book as well. Indeed. And 
Prof. Miria, we're speaking right at the end of 2023. The book officially appears next year, 2024. And I was lucky enough that the publisher agreed to send me a digital copy. So I've had a chance to make my way through it, as you said, called Being Human in Digital Cities. And I would really commend it to people. I think it's um, really interesting. A couple of the concepts I wondered if you could elaborate on for us. One is you talk about different kinds of humanisms. Uh, one is the popular. Another is the demotic. Uh, I wonder if you could let us know about the differences and the overlaps between popular humanism and demotic humanism. Yes, I, I, I think this was um, uh, these concepts and the meanings of these concepts, as I will try to explain them, have a lot to do with my uh, own heritage as a cultural studies, a media studies scholar, uh, but also my attempt to make sense of those different claims uh, uh, to urban humanity by different actors. Um, so... Um, so basically what I'm saying in the book, and this all came out of my empirical research. Again, I feel, and I, and I hope other people who might be reading the book feel that this is a very cultural take um, to uh, life in the city. So what I've uh, come to find out is that um, while technology is everywhere and there is huge investment in technologies, what happens is that uh, different actors make uh, displaced technology. They don't talk about technology, uh, but actually they uh, talk about um, technology as something that is not serving growth or the market, but it's actually serving humanity. So uh, when I started doing this research, what I found out um, uh, was that peculiar claim to what I refer to as popular humanism. So I started uh, I started my analysis of media, I started my analysis of policy documents and corporate documents to see how the big players, the institutional elite players are envisioning and imagining uh, digital cities. And what I found out is that they make these claims that we shouldn't think about technology. We should think about humanity. We should not think about infrastructures, but we should think about the future of humane cities, sustainable cities, open cities, just cities. And I was taken aback by that discourse, um, seeing it again in players that we know that the reason that they promote infrastructural and digital change is probably profit. Um, so I started looking deeper into these narratives, and this is what I refer to as popular humanism. So um, what I'm claiming with the concept of popular humanism is that institutional and elite actors in the city incorporate values of humanism in order to make that investment and that promotion of uh, digital change um, seem as the best way possible for the future of sustainable and humane cities. Of course, we could interpret that incorporation of humanist values uh, as a marketing trope, right? So um, 
perhaps instead of talking about, you know, where, why we should have CCTV cameras everywhere, why we should have, you know, predictive policing, uh, we're not doing it for uh, more control in the cities. We're not doing it you know, to advance profit of big corporations. We're doing it for humans. While I think, and we as critical scholars think that possibly this is the intention behind popular humanism, um, I think there's something else that is going on. I think that uh, at the times of crisis that we're experiencing and we're going on right now, when cities are the epicenters of so many crises, right? Financial crisis, epidemiological crisis, environmental crisis, there's an overall crisis, systemic crisis. So neoliberalism is under attack. Big tech is dealt with suspicion. Um, and at the same time, we see the rise of social movements, social movements um, like uh, Black Lives Matter or Extinction Rebellion, where claims to more humane and sustainable um, cities um, are being made. So... Um, what I am arguing through that concept of popular humanism is that um, there is an attempt to reconfigure social order in cities, in cities where there is a lot of suspicion towards uh, different systemic actors. There is an attempt to reconfigure social order. And the way that social order is being um, uh, reconfigured is through uh, technology. So if persuasive arguments are made that technologies of control, of surveillance and profit are for the good of humanity, then it's more likely to have a buy into by uh, local governments, by people themselves. So I'm referring to that uh, incorporation of humanist uh, values by um, elites and, uh, from institutions as popular humanism. And I'm drawing here also from um, uh, from work uh, by scholars and colleagues like Sarbane Weiser, who talks about popular feminism as the way that uh, uh, different systemic actors, for example, are incorporating feminist uh, um, feminist values in their marketing campaigns and in order to sell. So. Uh, Popular, uh, popular uh, humanism in this case it, uh, represents this incorporation of humanist values by um, uh, by systemic actors. Uh, popular humanism uh, exists, I'm arguing, and it make, it's making an advance because there are two other competing humanisms that um, uh, that uh, we can uh, observe in cities. Uh, what you refer to already as the demotic humanism and also what I refer to later in the book as critical humanism. So I'm talking uh, about cities as sites of competing humanisms with uh, um, systemic actors incorporating humanist values so that they establish their legitimacy and they advance their interests. And then we have demotic humanism, which is really that cultural studies reading of what is happening around technology. So what I'm saying is that uh, humanism is not just an ideology, it's not just an abstract set of values, but uh, in order to understand humanism, we have to think about experience. Experience 
uh, and affect and how people who occupy the cities try to make sense of the environments that they occupy, where we have technologies making, a, 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 you know, an advance, very often representing, of course, corporate interest. But we have technologies which also people are using all the time to make sense of their world, to find belonging, to develop relationships uh, with others. So um, um, I'm saying that uh, unlike popular humanism, where we see a deliberate uh, incorporation of humanist values within a new form of Eurocentric and systemic um, uh, conception of the human, in order to uh, to sustain social order, we have demotic humanism, which is much more messy and much more contradictory, where people um, exist within these limited possibilities that uh, the structures of digitization offer them, but where they also try to build a life and to actually try to find freedom, autonomy, and dignity, fundamental values of, of humanism. And in order to talk about uh, demotic humanism, I'm thinking about moving. Uh, what I do is like um, I move away from that uh, those centers of power, but also the centers of the society where we very often a lot of our research in uh, on the digital focuses on that mainstream of society and the middle class white experience. So in order to understand the contradictions of demotic uh, humanism, I'm going to the margins and I'm trying to make sense of how. Uh, uh, um, what happens in the urban margins um, around the uh, technologies, those technologies of control, but also the technologies that allow people to connect with each other and find a space in the city. So I'm looking at those uh, contradictory experiences where for example, we see solidarities of, of, of people in urban margins, uh, solidarities of people uh, for example, newly arrived uh, migrants and their neighbors and how they use social media to develop uh, solidarities. The same uh, social media that are used, of course, to surveil the same kind of, of communities. Um, so it is uh, the space of demotic uh, humanism is a, is a messy space where I want to make a claim that when we think about power, knowledge and control around uh, technological change, we have to remember how important that embeddedness of questions of power and knowledge are in, in real life and the people who occupy the city. And this is a space where we see those contradictions, where uh, we see the um, um, uh, we see power, but we also see um, uh, different forms of resistance. And then I'm moving to critical humanism, uh, which uh, you haven't mentioned in your question, but I think it's like that important element of this triangular, uh, triangulated understanding of the competing humanisms of uh, the digital city. So I'm talking about popular humanism as that hegemonic uh, systemic a way to establish order, to reaffirm social order in cities. I'm talking about demotic humanism as the space where urban humans negotiate and try to make sense of, of their uh, digital lives um, 
between uh, spaces of resistance and control. And then I'm talking about critical humanism as a space of activism, but also of intellectual work that we have to do, where we have to reclaim those values of, of humanism away from the, uh, the space where big uh, uh, powerful actors are making claims to urban humanity, but also away from that Eurocentric perceptions of what it means to be human that have um, uh, that have been, of course, used in very selective ways in, in history, both to recognize only certain kind of humanity and also, of course, to dehumanize um, um, other elements of humanity. So um, I'm starting by recognizing certain political projects uh, around cities where um, those claims to being human are being made through ideals of relational humanity. So how technologies are being used to recognize how being human is always relational, um, how it relates to what Escobar refers to the pluriversality of the um, of the world that we occupy, where we have to recognize different humanities and um, where we can see the recognition of human and humanist values um, through the lens of uh, a historical and uh, and future responsibility where um, we have to recognize responsibility towards each other, where um, 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 uh, redistribution and reparations and accountability to those actors who have um, concentrated power in this case, of course, you know, digital power. Um, have to be taken into account in thinking about more humane, um, um, uh, more humane and truly uh, sustainable and open cities. So the the power centers of technology and environmental criminality are the United States, Japan, China, India and the European Union. How would a system of reparations operate, given that two of those countries are from the supposed global south, uh, and that whilst they have certainly been involved uh, in the recent past, but also the not-so-recent past, in transforming the lives of others, they don't have the same history of successful, brutal imperialism as much of the European Union and the United States. So how would that reparation work, especially given we're also talking here about the places that have the biggest cities in the world, in mm -hmm. India and China? Yeah, how would they work? Um, I mean, I cannot have a definite answer to that. But one thing that I'm thinking a lot about, and not only me, but I think many um, uh, post-colonial scholars that uh, that inspire me, is that we we have established two two normative frames in relation to understanding, you know, power knowledge. One is that uh, we're now talking about the global north and the global south as two distinct categories, where very often our critique is very much uh, building on this on this binary, right? That we have the powerful historically and uh, presently powerful global north against the. Uh, um, 
disempowered and um, uh, subaltern and, uh, and exploited global south. Um, as someone who has done a lot of research on migration, um, um, I, I have seen how how problematic is this um, a solid framework of creating the binary of the global north and the global south is. For example, we have the global south in cities uh, through migration. So global south is ever present uh, in, in the global north. And of course, we have the global north ever present in cities and in, in societies in the global south, right? Because of the histories and the present expressions of colonialism. You mentioned another element of how this binary is becoming more and more problematic. I think that relates to how we see uh, big global players who are uh, where we see that over concentration of, of wealth, exploitation of people in the environment in the global south. Um, so uh, in many ways, I think that we have to think about, you know, we have to uh, uh, to think at what level we're talking about relations of power between global north and global south, uh, and to see new forms of colonialism um, and, and neocolonialism that might be um, uh, that might be enacted by old players or new players that um, uh, occupy positions of hegemony um, uh, in, in this very kind of unequal. Uh, distribution of power. Um, so we have the, uh, when we talk about reparation, we have to talk about the historical responsibilities of the old colonial powers. But I think we have to also think about solidarities at present in relation to these new uh, new players. How do we build solidarities across, uh, across regions uh, so that um, those people and the environments that are exploited in different parts of the world can be protected. Again, not by essentializing who are the, um, uh, who can be part of the solidarities or not, but actually in thinking about whose interest aligns uh, uh, with um, uh, whose interest in other parts of the world. No, for sure. I mean, uh, per capita, Australia and Norway are the biggest corporate uh, environmental criminals because of the masses of unsustainable fuel that they export to both the global north and global south. And, of course, the principal petro states have never been places like Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. They're Germany, the United States and Japan. Mm -hmm. So I think your point is well taken. One of the things that's quite striking about the book is the way in which you, especially at the beginning, I think very movingly, very evocatively, can interlace personal experience with profound theoretical and empirical work. So this moment when you say at the beginning something like, a lot of people have ditched their cars when possible and walk around, or I guess take mass transit, and how that might appear to be something that disarticulates you from some of these technologies, most notably cars and streetlights and whatnot. But in fact, you're listening to podcasts. And even if you weren't listening to podcasts, you're seeing advertising, marketing and ideas everywhere you go in the city 
about technology. Yeah, it sort of envelops you. I think that's a that's a very powerful way of bringing in the reader, and uh, and I found it very uh, quite enchanting as well as deeply informative. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about, getting back to the popular side of humanism, is about this. In terms of interest groups that try to affect what goes on in Washington, which is where most of this stuff is decided, mm. if we go back 15 or 20 years, Facebook and Microsoft and Amazon and so on were minor presences, if presences at all by contrast with manufacturing, the extractive sector, agriculture, and tobacco. Now they outspend all of those put together by an incredible factor in terms of what they put into lobbying. And the two areas that worry them are the EU and the United States. And they're worried about these because in the case of the EU, if there are privacy issues or other consumer issues, even though those things are not taken as being relevant at all by the United States government and never have been, because of the size of the EU market and its comparative wealth, basically these entities have to comply with it, right? At the same time as they're very keen to make sure they can avoid every conceivable form of regulation in the United States. So I wondered if you could talk to... The space between a popular urbanism, if you like, and the attempt to function as savvy Machiavellian political actors that these groups have picked up on very, very rapidly. Yes, um, I, I, I think your your analysis is spot on. And if there's a reason to talk about um, a popular humanism, I think it's precisely this Machiavellian uh, Machiavellianism. Um, but also, it's fragility. Um, and I always think uh, I, I refuse to give up on hope. Um, so I think that many of those big, powerful players incorporate these humanist values because they recognize that fragility of their narrative and their the legitimacy of their interest. So what I'm arguing in the book is that one of the reasons that uh, the big players adapt, um, adapt and incorporate humanist values so you know, you have the big tech talking about, you know, green cities, you have green tech talking about just cities. Um, the reason they do that is because the counterpoint are the social movements that are questioning the legitimacy of their existence, um, but also the citizens uh, we see, for example, you know, surveys that show that big tech is suffering from low trust, right? Um, and this also, uh, um, uh, I think, the human mistrust and and, and um, mistrust towards big tech and neoliberal capitalism, I think, more generally, is also translated, for example, in uh, legislation uh, initiatives in the European Union, right, where the electorate is 
actually putting pressure, I, I think, in politicians to uh, to establish some um, some control over these corporations. Um, so the reason that we see all these different claims to the human from these big players is. I, I think precisely because of that fragility of their narrative. Now, of course, if we think about Washington, there is a long way to go to see how that fragility uh, um, uh, translates in, in, into any kind of meaningful change. But as you say, if we move to the European Union, we see that the cracks are there, right? So we see legislators in a big market like the EU um, um, asking for legitimacy, imposing center um, uh, center limits to the control of these corporations. And again, because my uh, my thinking, my research, and my politics are always driven by hope. My hope is that what we see as different kind of social movements, what we see as movements. Um, um, uh, around uh, um, uh, uh, the environment, about um, 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 uh, Black Lives uh, Matters, now the anti-war movements. I believe those movements are, are, are building alliances and new forms of imagination where what we take for granted, and yes, of course, you know, what the uh, Silicon Valley and what Washington might take for granted now is not going to be um, sustainable forever. That's why I'm also bringing this idea of the critical humanism. So critical humanism is this concept of, of hope, but it's a concept of hope that has to be also grounded in reality, right? So, for example, I'm mentioning in relation to the... Um, uh, to the praxis of critical humanism, um, I'm mentioning a, um, a federation, a, a transnational movement that is um, is put together by different cities that is called um, the Coalition of Cities for Digital Justice. So we see urban governments around the world now putting forward those very arguments that our critical scholarship uh, uh, sets forward, right? So control, accountability uh, of corporations, separation of governance uh, from digital corporations, um, control of surveillance eco uh, economies and so on. So I think we might be seeing that space now that is um, is quite frightful. And we see, of course, you know, digital corporations um, uh, 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 and their technologies being involved in war planning, right? In border control, in governance. But I think we, even though this is a very difficult, uh, uh, difficult moment, I don't think it's solid and... I think that there is change and there's hope and we have to invest, I think, into change, imagination, solidarities and action against that order. Now, one aspect of critical humanism that you've already touched on is Arturo Escobar's work with various indigenous groups in Colombia about pluriversalism. And I wonder how that rubs up against what is a very powerful, however flawed, discourse of universalism, namely human rights, which mm. is one area of defence against the imperialist uh, British government and people for refugees, for example, one mm. area of defence against the same tendencies in the southern west, southwestern United States, 
and so on. So is human rights just something that doesn't fit into the pluriversal universe? Mm. Um, Multiverse. I would have had a more definite answer if we were not in this historical moment where we are, where even the most fundamental liberal human rights are being questioned. Um, but I think if um, if we think about the long terrain where we uh, we should the position we should take about human rights more generally. Um, I think, yes, of course, the world that we should uh, aspire, imagine and work for uh, should go well beyond um, uh, what we understand now uh, as human rights, um, which are very much historically, they emerge from liberal modernity, right? And those ideals of, of liberal modernity, which were very much situating humanity, the center of humanity in Europe, right? Um, so I'm talking about critical humanism, precisely being aware of those limits of liberal humanism and its universalism. And the critique that I'm making against popular humanism is basically that it revives this idea of the universal human that in fact, what it does is to produce and reproduce a hierarchical humanity where certain humans are being recognized and privileged while other humans are dehumanized. And I think we have a twist in, in digital cities where um, it's not only the uh, the white middle class humanity that is recognized, but also the ones who can be incorporated into the digital economy, which is the new form of, of, of capitalist economy. Um, so I'm proposing a critical humanism precisely because I'm arguing that we have to move away from this idea of universality because we have seen how um, uh, that universality of the united human has reproduced a repression of so many people around the world. So I'm talking about critical humanism as a, as a diffused and decentralized humanism where we have to think about the different um, traditions around the world of thinking and understanding the human. Um, for example, I mean, you mentioned Escobar and plurivers pluriversality. Um, another inspiring point of reference for me is Ubuntu, the African, uh, what many people referred as African humanism, where very uh, in, in Ubuntu, um, humanity is always discussed relationally. So Anyone can only be fulfilled as human through responsibility to others and through others. I'm thinking about humanism through the critical traditions of humanism. Uh, for example, um, 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 Winter's uh, humanism, which emphasized emancipation of um of black people i'm thinking about the humanism um of uh, fanon about reclaiming the rights to being recognized as human uh, beyond that centrality of the european subject so i think we cannot give up on human <laughs> to the values of humanism so those values of freedom autonomy or dignity cannot be surrendered to the eurocentric and now the corporate i think project of popular humanism i think it's very important these values are values that 
And again, that's why I'm thinking through the human, because if you're working with people at the margins, at the urban or transnational margins, you realize who needs those values the most. And I think we need to reclaim those values, recognizing universality, recognizing um, the relationality of what it means to be human and have responsibility uh, to others. To a certain extent, I see this book as not the ultimate culmination, but a culmination of your many and varied works on migration, on cities, and on the media, which mm. have connected in other books but and articles, obviously, but seem to pulse through this book, this work. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what that means in journalistic terms. And I ask you that uh, because you were a, a very noted, prominent journalist, <laughs> both with uh, Greek uh, media outlets and with British ones, and perhaps others that I'm not aware of. I wondered if you could perhaps reflect for a moment, and I know it takes you back a little bit, on the way in which it was possible for you as a reporter to... Mm engage with some of these issues of the media themselves, of migration, of urban life? Mm. Uh, yeah, that's kind of a different life, a different universe. That uh, of uh, uh, Okay, yeah. It may not be applicable as a question. I'm just interested, yeah? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm thinking about it as you, as you speak. And, and I think... I, I, I think... It's certain frustration that I had as a journalist and, and as a researcher that um, made me do the journalism and the research I do. Um, so, I mean, if you might have not have guessed uh, already, I mean, a lot of my work, and again, both as journalist and uh, as an academic, it, is driven by a deep commitment to justice. <laughs> um, um, my politics and my research are, are very much intertwined. But my frustration, I think, has always been um, in uh, about the silencing of the people and uh, and, the, uh, and the people's voices. And especially when I talk about people, uh, I'm, I'm talking especially the people um, at the margins. Uh, the uh, the people who's vo who very often are spoken about both in the media and in academic research and very rarely have a voice or are given a, a, a space to speak in their own voice. Um, so, so as a journalist, I, I, I think that's what I tried to do is it was to go out there and speak to the people who we, we rarely see um, uh shared in the media and as an academic that's definitely has been i think the the compass of of my research and i and i'm not trying to say that i'm, I'm you know I, I, i'm so wonderful and so noble it's just um um the kind of research i think that i have done uh that led me uh, to this position um so again doing research at the urban margins doing research with migrants um one cannot but recognize the complexity uh, of life, experience, um, subordination, marginality, but also the power of voice, of solidarity, of the, the generative 
possibility of the margins like bell hooks um, invites us to think. Um, so if there's anything I can say as a, as a former journalist and as a researcher is that um, um, it's that responsibility of voice and of recognition uh, of the actors that uh, they are not here that we need to do. Um, we need to keep investing and working on. And that's why that's that's my work in the media that it has been very much about, um, you know, where where do we see voice? Where do we see uh, the presence um, of the actors that we often speak about and make claims for? But we very rarely actually recognize as, as legitimate actors to speak. Thank you. That's a a wonderfully comprehensive response to a rather dim-witted question. I'm very grateful to you, and I think it uh, it indicates just how this notion of social justice, let's call it, has animated your career in its different iterations. And I think that that is something that comes through uh, really powerfully in your book uh, and and in other books that you've done. So I've got a couple more questions for you, Prof., and then, as is my wont, I'll open it up to you if there are things you want to add or subtract. As you know, I don't edit. So subtracting would simply mean you're saying, oh, my God, I think I just said this. I didn't mean it. Or rather, yeah. Toby, you said that. You're a lunatic, whatever it might be. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. So the first question is to ask you, if I'm a, I'm a young doctoral student and I'm interested in the work you do, and I want to do something, I want to grow up to be media or I want to grow up to be someone like her, yeah? Although if they said that, you'd probably banish them from the room. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> if they, so they're there with you in the room or on the dreaded Zoom, as are we, <laughs> or like forms, and they say, I want to know how to research cities. What are you going to say to them? <laughs> um, I'll say two things. Start from the margins and move inwards. And if you want to study citizen technology, do not start from technology. Start from the human. I find this... I, I think it's interesting how... Rarely we do that. Um, and of course, again, you know, I'm, I haven't invented the wheel. And of course, I'm inspired by critical scholarship, you know, uh, cultural studies. I mean, Stuart Hall has always been, you know, he was the light for my PhD once upon a time. For example, I mentioned Bell Hooks, who's inviting us, you know, to think through the margins. But um, I think we cannot say that enough. Um, very often in our research, our research on the media, especially in media and communication scholarships, scholarship, we are very often we don't deliberately ignore the margins, but because also of our position of privilege, many of us, of course, are in a position of uh, privilege, reproduce that universality of the center. We reproduce that universality of, of Eurocentrism. Or, or, or of the uh, uh, middle class experience of that um, 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 experience that is very much located, very much in the center of society. So 
for for me that has been extremely uh, i mean it it has driven my research and i don't think i would be able to say much if if i wasn't starting for, from the margins because uh, um i think it is that uh, uh, that experience those voices, as I mentioned already, from people from the margins that allow me to say anything, anything remotely, um, remotely meaningful. And the other point that I said that let's not start from technology, let's start from the humans, is that response to that frustration that so much of what we do and now there is so much interesting scholarship around technology and around the power of technology and the agency of the machine but very often what we see is that great interesting scholarship relegates the human uh to the receiving uh, to being at the receiving side of um uh, of power that is being exercised somewhere else, either in the headquarters of big tech or in the machine and in the machine's agency. And I think if we actually go and see what's happening with the humans and the different claims to the humans, we might see a more complicated picture, not where power doesn't exist. And absolutely the concentration of power in machines and in big tech is there. But humans are not in the receiving side. And I think there's no politics without hope. And I think it is humans themselves that give us that hope. Because as I mentioned previously, you know, you go, you see the solidarities in the margins. You see how um, in London or in Los Angeles, uh, the most marginalized, undocumented migrants are using social media to create solidarities against policing and arresting of, 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 of undocumented migrants, right? We need to write these stories and we need to recognize the different experiences of the humans. So th this is what I, I would say. Ask that question. What if we start from humans rather than technology? What kind of cities do we see in this case? And if they are interested, well, maybe we can work together. They can stay <laughs> in the office or the Zoom call a little longer. <laughs> but I think that would inspire anybody with some interest in these topics to go ahead. That's wonderful. So my, my last question, Prof, is even though it's three or four days until 2024 <laughs> when the book officially appears, what's the next project? Do you have one or are you trying to draw breath <laughs> sitting ponder things for a bit um i i'm sure you've heard that so many times i when i um i i delivered that manuscript i said i'll never write anything again that's it <laughs> um i think i'm going to take it easy but there's something happening on the back of my head i mean i'm thinking about some of the I'm, I'm I'm already thinking about some of the concerns that uh, that I've had for a while. You touched upon the environmental question. Um, I'm interested about the storytelling around environmental migration at the moment. Uh, there are many stories being told about it, and there are many different actors, human and non-human, uh, telling those stories. Um, and I think I want to explore that a bit more. But this is very early and raw 
at the moment. No pressure, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything you'd like to add or subtract, as I said earlier? Um I mean, you you asked all the all the good and the difficult questions, and you left me with, with a lot uh, to think about. It's hard to think about what I have not uh, <laughs> um, I, I have not uh, said already. Um, obviously, I, I think connectivity and, and and the interconnectedness of the questions that we're asking. You know that you touched upon it. You know who are the uh, the uh, the players in the world that have uh, much power and what the pl players who are, you know, have no power in the world. Um, I, I think this is something that is really important and it's really a question that I have no answer to, but I'm really trying to understand. So um, while we all do our research in our little pockets, right, either these are cities, either these are um, um you know, certain environmental concerns. It's this interconnectedness and that pluriversality that Escobar is talking about that I think always needs to um, uh, to drive our interest. Um, and as a war is taking place, as, uh, as we speak, I think we have to think about that responsibility of thinking of our little pockets of research in relation to those bigger questions. So um, just more of a question rather than another statement or an answer that I can, I can give in this place. Thank you so much, Miria. It's been uh, great to talk to you. The book is terrific and I'm sure it will have a major impact. Thank you, Toby. Thank you for having me.